Hey guys, when you search for Bible-related stuff, virtually all the results are from Christian pastors and apologists. Yeah, to find real biblical criticism, you need to dig down. Most people never even learn about all the scholarship out there, which debunks a lot of the evangelical claims. Yeah, there's an entire well-funded industry of biased Christian content out there. Our show tries to offer a counter-argument to them, but we rely on our listeners to keep the show going week after week. If you'd like to support the show, please check out our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash skepticsbibleproject. Thank you to all those supporting us. We hope you enjoy the show. I'm John. And I'm Ben. And this is the Skeptics Bible Project. We read the Bible so you don't have to. I don't care too much for preachers. I don't like to go to church. But I'd hate to meet St. Peter when my body leaves this earth. Hello and welcome to the Skeptics Bible Project. We are continuing on with our discussion about inerrancy and church splits. This idea that the Bible is perfect and without any error whatsoever has led to a fracturing of the church. Um, and last time we talked about some of the controversies in the Protestant church. We talked about the sacraments and the longstanding uh, Calvinist versus Arminian debate. Um, and today we're going to continue on with some more Protestant doctrines that um, are dividing the church to this day. And um, Ben, why don't you kick it off for us? So we're going to start uh, by talking about the spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts really are pretty extensive uh, list in uh, the New Testament. Um, and they vary from sort of relatively normal acts, like being a uh, person that helps or an administrator, maybe uh, someone that is a pastor teacher, um, encouraging, contributing, leadership, mercy, marriage and celibacy, um, anyone that renders service. But usually... I would say when people talk about the spiritual gifts and the controversy around spiritual gifts, what they mean are the more miraculous gifts. Um, so speaking through tongues, uh, prophesying, um, healing, things like that. I was telling John uh, in a previous conversation, I think it's interesting if you look at uh, different authors and different lists of the spiritual gifts, uh, they're really not a succinct list that is consistent. There are different um, items listed at different times and uh, in different places. So it's fascinating for one that this whole theology developed around spiritual gifts, because I think that the term is used a lot of times in a, in a more of a generic way than a super specific way. Um, but I said like the real controversy comes around the gifts that involve the more supernatural elements. And, uh, you know, first we'll just talk about a couple passages in the Bible that talks about uh, the Spirit coming in power. Um, so in Joel in the Old Testament, um, there's a prophecy, and the Lord prophesied through Joel, and it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even upon the men servants and maid servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And that's in Joel 2, 28 and 29. So the evangelicals who believe in the spiritual gifts believe that it was prophesied in Joel and uh, fulfilled in Acts 2. Uh, Peter recognized that the new covenant empowering of the Holy Spirit had come to God's people and that the new covenant age had begun as a direct result of the activity of Jesus in heaven. For Peter said, this Jesus God raised up and we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this which you see in here, um, which happened in Acts 2, 23. We see uh, Jesus using the power of the Spirit to uh, when he comes into Galilee in Luke 4, um, and when he teaches with great power in Luke 4, and when he heals and casts out demons in Luke 4. Um, and also when he casts out demons uh, in Matthew 2, uh, or Matthew uh, 12, I'm sorry. 
and he sends out his disciples uh, to do miraculous works in Matthew 10 uh, by the power of the Spirit. There was a lot of controversy even in the New Testament around spiritual gifts. Uh, Paul was constantly having to write to the church in Corinth about their uh, spiritual gifts. Uh, they weren't lacking in any. And uh, there's a concept of the spiritual gifts uh, that are imperfect, but when the perfect way of knowing comes at the Lord's return, then these gifts will pass away. Uh, that's the way that the evangelical church interprets 1 Corinthians 13.10. So these gifts, well, the evangelical church that believes the spiritual gifts are uh, still, I'm sorry, the more Pentecostal church, believe the, the spiritual gifts are still in effect and continuing. Um, ironically, that same verse is interpreted by uh, the folks that believe that these gifts are um, not permanent. They interpret 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 13, that the spiritual gifts pass away, tongues, they say, will cease, uh, knowledge will pass away, for our knowledge is imperfect and our prophecy is imperfect, but when the perfect comes, the imperfect will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, now I know in part then I shall understand fully, even as I, as I have been fully understood. So faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love, 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 13. Um, so the belief is basically when Paul is talking about the more perfect age, that that age is after the either the church fathers have died um, and that the miraculous corresponded with the formulation of scripture. And once uh, the scriptural canon was formed, that uh, there was no need for miracles anymore and that miracles ceased. It's an interesting, uh, there's an interesting dichotomy uh, because both sides really take uh, that passage and interpret it in a different way, much like we saw with the, uh, the Lord's Supper. Um, one says clearly when it's talking about the uh, perfect time um, that it's talking about the time of the Lord's return. And the other interpretation um, is the perfect time is the time when the revelation of the Lord is revealed perfectly uh, to us through Scripture. Right. Ben, what stands out to me uh, growing up in the church that we believed that the uh, spirit, the age of the spiritual gifts from the New Testament was over. And, um, you know, this, this stems from Pentecost, um, in the, in the New Testament, which was a, an event where the, the spirit descended upon the disciples and they were able to do these miraculous things like speak in tongues. And the thing that's interesting to me, and I think it's kind of funny is like our whole like denomination basically thought that Pentecostals and those that were using the gifts of the spirit were basically lying or faking um or just crazy <laughs> so you talk about a divide i mean that's a huge divide like within protestant church it's like the their entire like premise of their church was almost like just completely phony or made up uh according from the perspective of my you know reformed protestant church uh, and i guess from their perspective from the pentecostal perspective it was like yeah well the holy spirit is just not working at all in those churches and those reformed you know churches and uh i don't think you could get a, a bigger divide the, what i think is interesting is there's really not a scriptural basis per se for the ceasing of spiritual gifts but what i think happened is at a certain point in history they were like there's not really miracles happening easy enough for me to imagine that the practices that were pentecostal in the early church were completely similar to the processes that are pentecostal in the churches today right um whether you want to call them psychosomatic or you know working yourself into a trans or if you think they're real or you think they're fake like they could be exactly the same if people are reading the scriptures and thinking about oh these miracles were happening and people were able to do these miraculous things but i don't see that anywhere i think a theology has to develop that says well why aren't people seeing these miracles everywhere yeah and i think that's really interesting because i don't think christians like to admit that they have developed theologies based on modern day observations 
for instance, they would not want to admit that they believe the that the, that the Bible does not teach a flat Earth because they know that the Earth is now round because of what science has taught us. They don't like to they don't like to say, well, science showed us that the Earth was round, so now we have to interpret these verses, you know, in a more metaphorical way. And uh, it's the same thing here, where they look around and they say, well, we don't see arms being growing back, you know, uh, amputees being healed. Um, and other and other miracles um, that we can that are testable. So therefore, uh, it, we must be in an age where this is over. But I think that's exactly what they're doing. I the, demons comes to mind because there's demon possessions in the New Testament, and now there's not any demon possessions. And of course, some some people think there are. Um, I don't think there are. And because of this lack of evidence of demon possessions they i've heard arguments like well uh the the demonic activity was at uh, such a a peak because it was right around the time that jesus was here on earth that's what i used to hear in my church um i would say this is definitely uh aside to like our main topic but since i brought it up i would say that um you know mental disability was completely undiagnosed at that point. So when somebody was acting in an erratic manner, it must be a demon. And now when people act the exact same way, we think, oh, okay, this is this person is suffering from some sort of um, mental disorder that needs to be treated. And I think that's a good explanation as to why we don't see demon possessions anymore. Uh, but the gifts of the spirit, I think, is fascinating because as as soon as you get into a um a recorded history that's more easily accessible we just don't see any of these miracles anymore now if you look at the in the catholic church where this is getting into the question of miracles more broadly but in the catholic church of course um they still believe in in these miracles they believe in demon possession and exorcisms and they believe in that there will be miraculous signs um and in the Protestant church, it's divided. And, uh, for the very reasons that we've been talking about. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. I think that, um, it's happened more than the church would like to admit where they have to sort of tarry with history and reinterpret their, uh, their beliefs. I mean, I think it happens all the time actually, but, um, I mean, I, I, I agree. Like we always looked, I mean, in my church, there were not people speaking in tongues and we definitely, there were there was definitely a question of some denominations that practiced the spiritual gifts of whether they were really even saved, which I know your church probably would have uh, felt almost the same. Like they're almost they were almost like not a Christian. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and I, um, I mean that that developed over time. I mean, kind of culturally, it was interesting how certain periods of time it was those groups were really considered like not even saved. And then in other groups of time, I, I noticed a little bit more of an alignment with them. And I think a lot of that has to do with politics and, um, and what they viewed as, you know, government uh, opposition to the church in general. I found the same thing with Catholicism when I was very young. Catholics were viewed as basically not even saved. It was, it was such a heresy. It was such a bad version of Christianity that Jesus wasn't even like saving people in the Catholic church. But then now... I noticed that there's a lot more connection to the Catholic Church among Protestants where they are much more accepting of Catholics being considered, you know, brethren. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, part of it is un an unfortunate political alliance <laughs> that I think is made for interesting bedfellows theologically. Um, I, I also just think that there's not a good faith understand, like a good faith effort to understand each other. Um so there's a lot of like talking past each other. I mean, I can remember in in our Christian high school debates around speaking in tongues eventually centered on was there an interpreter present? And I mean, that was sort yeah. of a disingenuous way to argue if we don't believe that tongues even exist anymore. <laughs> right. um, <laughs> so it was like and I think that that's so often the case. Um, I think that there's probably more agreement on all these issues if there was like good faith um but again the doctrine of inerrancy if you think that there's only one 
if there's only one way that if scripture is perfect and perfectly consistent um, and perfectly complementary, um, and you're reading scripture the right way, which you obviously are at striving to do, then of course you're going to uh, think that you're right and these other people are crazy. And uh, I just found it interesting that there's just not that much of a scriptural basis for the ceasing of spiritual gifts. If anything, it yeah. seems like they're supposed to continue until the return of Christ. Yeah, I, I think that's the most interesting part of it, actually, because, um, yeah, if you take the Bible seriously, um, faith healing is real in the Bible. And it never says, oh, this is stopping and it's not going to continue. And speaking in tongues is very real. And it's actually um, kind of almost like a requirement at points in Scripture. And um, the I think the only reason that uh, people don't take it seriously is just because they they don't see it happening. And again, getting into falsifiability a little bit. I mean, like people have analyzed when people are speaking in tongues, like it could this even possibly be some kind of real, you know, uh, language of the angels that these people are uttering. And no, it's just total babbling gibberish. Um, and it does not make any sense. And I think, I think that's pretty obvious to certain denominations who say, okay, well, therefore, these gifts must have ceased and they they create their th theology from that yeah it's also fascinating that really paul um when he's writing i don't really care about other people when they're writing about the spiritual gifts but when paul is writing about them his focus is essentially like whatever spiritual gifts you do um it should be for the edification of the church that's his whole point in writing about them is it should be for the benefit of the church and the and all they've done is cause divisions that's a really good point. I mean, the like speaking in tongues, for example, in the New Testament, it was a at Pentecost. The way I interpret it, anyway, is that it was kind of a a reversal of the Tower of Babel. So now the whole this is this is the Holy Spirit sending out people in the name of Christ to uh, minister to people all over the world, not just in Jerusalem anymore. So how were they going to do that? Well, they were endowed with this special gift where they could speak in the tongue of whatever people they were talking to. And it was so it was kind of a practical miracle so that people could understand what they were saying. You can, I guess, argue about exactly how that took place. So that doesn't really make sense with like the modern, like charismatic view of speaking in tongues when what we've seen um, on like televangelists, when you hear them just kind of like babbling. However, I do think there is some verses that um, you could say, no, they're talking about some kind of spiritual language. It talks about the tongues of angels, et cetera. So again, it's just not really totally clear. Yeah, like everything else, everyone's right and everyone is wrong. Right. Um, I think that it's also, this is just an aside, and then I will probably move on, I guess, But um, unless you want to continue talking. But I think it's also fascinating that so much of the miraculous activity um that's attested to in the modern day because there actually is but it's all like coming out of really areas where it can't be falsified so it's like the underdeveloped world or um you know where there's like these unconfirmed miracles that uh you somebody grew back an arm but you know they live in a super rural place and it can't really yeah, I mean, I have so much to say about this. Definitely, we should do an episode on it. But yeah, it's always, it happened somewhere where you weren't. And it happened somewhere where there was no cameras. Um, and it's somebody saying that they heard their cousin's nephew saw it in their their church. There's a kind of a famous website now. I don't even know if it's still running, but it's it was uh, why doesn't God heal amputees.com or something to that effect. And I think that's a, actually a very good question, because if you believe that um, these healings are still happening, how come the only proof of it is like a televangelist making a woman stand up from a wheelchair and dance around on the stage? To me, that's not very convincing. It's like a cheap parlor trick. And, um, you know, miracles in the book of uh, John, the Gospel of John, were done as signs, as signs that this is all real, so that people would believe. Um, not the case, by the way, in uh, the Gospel of Mark, but that's a topic for another 
time. But it, but again, um, they're supposed to be signs to some degree, and they're not very convincing now um, that these signs are are anything genuine. Yeah, it's hard to um, lump together all Pentecostal practice because it's so wide ranging. And sure. there's there's definitely way more mainstream stuff, but the stuff that is really seen is the sort of prosperity gospel, which I think maybe we'll touch on a little bit later. Um, so that seems like a good spot to stop the spiritual gifts discussion. If you are ready, I think the next thing on the agenda is the uh, Seventh Day Adventist controversy. Yeah, or just the. Um the general controversy about the Sabbath. Um, so the Israelites were to observe this in the fourth commandment. It says, uh, this is Exodus 20 verse eight. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work. Thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, nor thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Wherefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So it's actually saying, even though the um, commandment was given in Exodus to Moses, it's actually instituted at creation um, at, because God rested on the seventh day. Wherefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So this is a very important um, teaching in the Old Testament and Jews to this day um, take the Sabbath extremely seriously and um, they have all kinds of rules that stem from this uh, about how to properly honor the Sabbath day and um, how to avoid work and um, I won't go into too much detail on that but Orthodox Jews to this day will do things like tape the um, tape the little button on the refrigerator down when on the Sabbath day so that when they open up the refrigerator, it's not using any electricity because that's a, that is a form of work. And I, I don't know, I'm not enough of an, of a scholar on that subject to go into a lot of detail on it, but anyway, they take it very seriously. So in the Christian church, it's divided uh, as far as do we even follow the Sabbath anymore or do we follow the Lord's day? And not, and if we do, which day of the week do we even do this on? So a non-Sabbatarian view, um, and there are a lot of non-Sabbatarians in the Protestant church right now, um, they will go to a verse like Colossians 2.16. Uh, actually, it's 2.16 through 17. Therefore, and this is the Apostle Paul, therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Um, so this, this view is basically saying, they use that verse to say, no, we should no longer follow the Sabbath day. Which I think is fascinating because um, a lot of Christians are not Sabbatarians, yet this is the fourth commandment. These are, you know, Christians are hanging up the Ten Commandments and they want to hang it up in schools and in courthouses all over the country. And so you would assume that the fourth commandment is still binding in some way. But no, uh, if you're not a Sabbatarian, you would say the fourth commandment no longer applies. Um, in Romans uh, chapter 14, verses 5 through 6, Paul says, One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. I, I guess we could um, get into that. I, to me, this is, a little bit, this is a little bit of a different take from Paul. And he's basically saying, like, don't, don't really judge anyone else. Um, which whichever one they do is fine. I mean, Ben, maybe you could uh, clarify if you think I'm getting that wrong. No, I think that's right. I laugh to myself. I mean, this is like my favorite Paul when he gets sort of uh, when he's speaking super polemically and radically. Um, and like, I mean, this would like Marcion would love this. Right. Uh, I think it's uh, a total abrogation of the Sabbath. 
Yeah, that's right. Well, this is again for non-Sabbatarian users. I have one more verse again from Paul, this time in Galatians, Galatians chapter four, verses nine through 10. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. <laughs> I don't know why it makes me laugh, but... Um, I know, it's so good. It's like not what you expect. And it's not really like... I mean, well, it's, it's, it's super like it's like in your face. Right. And it's so clear here. And I grew up in a church that that taught that the Sunday was the Sabbath day. And they took that very seriously. And then I read this and it's just, what? Uh, it's so uh, jarring. Um, but let me get into the the view that I said, like the church I grew up in that believed that the, the, the fourth commandment totally still applies, but now we should worship, we should follow the Sabbath day on Sunday. So they will go to a verse like Acts 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Okay. So it's talking about the early church and it's saying that on the, this was kind of a ritual that um, Christians would do. And uh, in 1 Corinthians 16, 2, Paul urges the Corinthian believers, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income. Since Paul designates this offering as service, quote unquote, in 2 Corinthians 9, 12, this collection must have been linked with the Sunday worship since um, the Sunday worship service of the Christian assembly. Historically, Sunday, not Saturday, was the normal meeting day for Christians in the church, and its practice dates back to the first century. So Christian Sabbatarians say that this Lord's Day, which was practiced in the New Testament and early church, is the Sabbath day, the same Sabbath that was given in the fourth commandment. And the logic goes something like this. The Bible says God's law is unchanging. The Ten Commandments are eternal. Therefore, the Lord's Day must be the new Sabbath day. All of this highlights our point that literally it's literally impossible to get one simple teaching from the Bible. Does the fourth commandment still apply? Well, like I said before, um, I haven't really heard any Christians say that we should just ignore it. And they certainly revere it by hanging it up in their houses and churches and schools, along with the rest of the Ten Commandments. But to be a Christian who doesn't follow a Sabbath day, they would have to say the fourth commandment is no longer binding. And if you say Sunday is the Sabbath day, which stems from the fourth commandment, well, then you are disobeying the specific day of the week given in the fourth commandment. You can't say the specific day isn't important because God himself specifies the day and he gives a reason why it is on that day. And if you are a Seventh-day Adventist who follows the Sabbath day on Saturday as the fourth commandment lays out, well, you have it pretty good except that you're directly conflicting with what Paul says when he says not to observe any special days in Galatians 4, 9 through 10. Any single view you take when it comes to the Sabbath day or Lord's day is completely problematic. It's impossible to derive one consistent position that takes into account the totality of the Bible. Yeah, I think <laughs> I think that you nailed it. Um, I, I don't know. I think there's always a problem um, transferring the old testament covenant to the new testament i think that just creates friction that different authors deal with in different ways um but i think that certainly paul is taking an anti-nominal position um luke is taking a modified position where now there you have the lord's day and the the ten commandments is obviously saying to honor the lord on the day that he rested <laughs> which is the sabbath um, so yeah, either way you're contradicting scripture. And yeah, sense. I mean, there are, like I said at the beginning, there's a lot of nuance to this. If you were to talk to Sabbatarians now, they would talk about how, you know, the days that Jesus spent in the tomb kind of symbolize the rest of God. So Jesus is kind of updating the creation account. Um, and that's why now it's, it's, uh, the Sabbath is celebrated on the first day of the week. But again, that's not clearly taught in the Bible. That's derived. It doesn't mean it's wrong, but it means that um, there's not a clear teaching on this. And I, I really can't blame anybody on either any side of this issue because it's um, totally confusing. I think it also gets into a larger issue about the law in general. And 
we won't go into that in this episode, but we'll definitely do an episode on that because what do we do? What do Christians do with the um, the law of Moses in the Old Testament? Um, it's one of the biggest conflicts in the early church, and Paul is dealing with it. Um, and and I th- would say Paul is dealing with it in in a very confusing way. He Paul is kind of all over the place on that. I don't know if you agree with me, but I've I've really scratched my head trying to read through Paul and get kind of a single idea of his view about whether or not the law still applies. And of course, the fourth commandment is, is at the heart of this. Yeah, there's a lot that's been written even in psychology on uh, Paul's use of the law. Um, it's confusing. Um, there's no doubt about it. It's not easily, it's not easy to distinguish exactly a consistent position from Paul. I totally agree with that. It's a no-win situation if you want to uh, be consistent with the scripture. I think there's uh, so much of trying to hold on to, like you said, the problem of dealing with the Old Testament law, but also trying to hold on to the Old Testament law uh, as the uh, Christian faith evolved to a uh, Greek Gentile faith and, uh, you know, how it was modified and interpreted, I think, were viewed more through those eyes. Uh, it's all a, an interesting, um, an interesting discussion for another time. All right, Ben. Well, we're going to continue on um, this subject. We have a few more to go over in our next episode. I think the next episode will probably wrap it up. But on today's show, I did want to try to get in another Bible versus Bible. What do you think? Yeah, let's do it. And now it's time for Bible versus Bible. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Bible versus Bible, the segment where we look at two contrasting verses in the Bible, um, which create a seeming contradiction, and we analyze them and try to determine how serious the contradiction is, if there's a contradiction at all, and um, what we can glean from looking at it. Today, we are going to look at um, two passages, one being Matthew 27, 13 through 14, and the Gospel of John, chapter 18, verses 33 through 34. So in Matthew, it says, Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many accusations they make against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now we turn to John, where it's the same account of Jesus um, standing before Pilate. Then Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you ask this on your own, or did others tell you about me? John 18.33-34 So, again, we're talking about the difference between a synoptic gospel, that being Matthew, and the gospel of John. And there are many differences uh, between these accounts. If you were to try to harmonize them, you would run into a lot of problems, as many people have tried to do through the centuries. And we are trying to focus on just some individual verses here. So we're going to try not to go off on a tangent and talk about all the problems between John and Matthew. Um, It is important, however, to keep that in context as we look at these things. It's going to be a similar story anytime we look at uh, the Gospel of John versus the Synoptics. But I think that this passage that Matthew has reflects like the synoptics actually perfectly when you're talking about what they have without getting into like any real specifics. Just I think like the biggest difference between the narratives in the synoptics and the narrative in John is the narrative in John just goes on and on and is this like complex web of um inter-dialogue and changing location and various characters and uh, even like philosophical musings and Jesus engaging with Pilate and the synoptics have Jesus not saying anything. Right. So what do you think? Is there any way around it? When I read it, the plain reading to me, it, it seems like Matthew is trying to say Jesus remained silent and he didn't uh, answer him in any way. And then in John, he does answer him, and the, it, it goes on uh, beyond the verse that I read. The conversation continues. 
Yeah, I don't think that there is any getting around the contradiction unless you're going to negate what the Gospels are saying. I think that if you are saying that Jesus actually did answer, then you're not saying the same thing that the synoptics are saying. Like, the synoptics are saying he didn't answer. <laughs> I just don't understand how you get around that type of a contradiction. I mean, they like, he doesn't answer in that narrative, and they say that he doesn't answer. So if you're taking the two accounts, the synoptic account with the question of whether Jesus answered versus John's account of whether Jesus answered, well, clearly in John's account, Jesus does more than just answer the question. He has a long conversation with Pilate about being the king of the Jews, and, um, you know, that's who he says he is, and it leads to all this, like, uh, inter-reflection upon the person of Jesus. And in the synoptics, Jesus is silent, um, so I don't think that there's any getting around the contradiction. Yeah, the various gospel authors... Um, portray Jesus in a very different light from one another. You have to understand that Matthew has Jesus not saying anything for a reason and for his literary purposes. And the same as John. John puts words in Jesus' mouth that he wants um, to teach a message about Jesus. And they're doing this for completely different reasons. And again, we say this every single time, but you can't just smash the two together to to make them harmonize. Now, a few ways I've heard people try to make them harmonize, I've heard evangelists talk about, well, at first Jesus didn't say anything, and then he said all the stuff that we read in John, which I think is totally uh, bastardizing Matthew, because um, this is not what Matthew is trying to say. The other thing I think is a really big problem with that is what Matthew actually says is that he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge. And then what you read in John is a charge. What Pilate says to him is, are you the king of the Jews? That's a charge. And Jesus answered that immediately, according to John. So I don't think that really works when people try to get out of this contradiction by talking about how, well, it's just a different point in the timeline, because Matthew seems pretty explicit to say he didn't answer him about even a single charge. Yeah, and I mean... It belies all of these discussions of Bible versus Bible. We're talking about people that are not eyewitnesses. So you can make the contradiction make sense to say that, well, Matthew like only had access to a certain amount of information. His vantage point was that Jesus didn't answer the question. But where John was, like John could really, he was closer. So he heard all of Jesus' answer. And, you know, that's the way I thought that the Gospels were for a long time. And that doesn't allow you to let John tell the story that he's telling because you're pretending that, you know, well, Luke's story and Matthew's story is also happening, like, on the peripheries. So you really, what you're doing, again, is you're combining all the narratives. You may have people in different places, but you're combining all the narratives and you're losing the message that each of these people have written that they're trying to communicate to you through what they're writing. And John, it's not surprising that Jesus has a gigantic dialogue with Pilate, because that's all that Jesus does in John, is have gigantic dialogues with people. What would be surprising is if he'd cast a demon out of someone when he saw Pilate, because that's not something that he does in John. But in John, he has dialogue, so that's what he does. He has a long dialogue with Pilate, because that's the way John tells the story. And if you pretend that he's telling the same story as Mark or Matthew and Luke, you lose John's story. I think in Mark, Jesus is clearly bothered by what's happening. Um, and that's probably why he's silent. I mean, I think he's silent in each of the synoptics, and even there, they have him being silent for a different reason. I think they've taken that kernel that they had of his silence, and they've used that for their own literary purposes. But I mean, I think the important thing is the story that John is telling is different than what the synoptics are telling. Once you start getting into these uh, these narratives that are in all four Gospels, um, you see the differences even in the synoptics. But yeah, scholars, when they read John's narrative, it's crafted so perfectly, and it doesn't even make sense as a historical narrative because it wouldn't be, no one would be in the position to hear these conversations. But the way that John crafts the narrative um, shows an extremely high level of skill 
in weaving the narrative together the way that he wants to. In all these instances, it's just super important to let the authors speak for themselves as opposed to imposing your own um, explanation or interpretation on top of what they say. Yeah, I think that what you said about the author of John being really interested in writing these long discourses um, in his own way uh, is so true, and it's it's completely contrasting to what we see in the Synoptic Gospels, all of this to highlight the idea that these are literary constructions. Um, I do also want to talk about really quickly what you said about how some people will say, like growing up in the church, you would have believed that, oh, well, there was two different eyewitnesses of this account, and each of them are giving their own version of it. I've heard that over and over and over growing up in church also. Well, there's a big problem with that here, because this is an omniscient narrator. I mean, no one in Jesus' inner circle would have been with Jesus in front of Pilate. Jesus was arrested. They're not going to allow his disciples to come in there. It makes absolutely no sense that in, in a historical setting that there were disciples of Jesus standing there recording these various things. Um, it just takes a little bit of logic to, to realize this, that in just a little bit of study, like no, no scholars, New Testament scholars around, think that the four Gospels are written from four different eyewitness perspectives, where each of them witnessed these events, and then they all wrote it down in their own way, which is why we have some differences, which, you know, and they always compare it to like a, like the police questioning witnesses at his crime scene, and none of them are lying, they're all just talking about it from their own perspective. Yeah, that concept makes sense, but that's not the way the Gospels were written. The idea that these are eyewitness testimonies has pretty much been um, rejected by all modern New Testament scholars. Yeah, this one is like incredibly problematic for the idea that there's an eyewitness. Like you said, the way that John tells the story, Pilate is going inside and outside of this the, the building where he's uh, conducting these interviews with Jesus. So part of it's said outside and then he'll go inside, like part of it's outside and then he'll go inside. And so like the motif changes as the setting changes and it's sort of like as Pilate oscillates, the setting is also changing as he's struggling with his inner decision. The form is broken down and, and perfectly spaced out. Um, and some people have said that it's like it's clearly not historical because Pilate is doing basically like everything himself. Like he doesn't have like scribes coming in to write stuff down. He's basically like going in and out and conducting all the business himself. Other people have said that it may be that it was even at Pilate's house where this interview was happening. So, like, the, clearly there's not just witnesses standing around to witness this super complicated dialogue and then write it down. I mean, it's it's something that was put together by the author or authors of John, um, the Johannian community, we'll call them. And it was in order, like the other parts of John, to teach the theology that John was trying to teach. Yeah, I think that, um, again, coming back to the idea that these are coming from eyewitness testimony, well, there's plenty of places where the author of these Gospels seems to know the thoughts of people. They know Pilate's wife's dream. This, this is, again, this is all evidence of being a literary construction here. Evangelists or apologists that will tell you oh, the, this is all coming from eyewitness testimony. And then you point things like this out and they're just creating all kinds of scenarios just to get out of the obvious conclusion that this is just a, uh, a writer writing from the standpoint of omniscience where they know everything that happens in the story. It's a literary construction. The other thing that they'll say is like, you know who the witness is? The witness was the Holy Spirit. Like, okay, if that's what you're saying, then don't say all this other stuff about it coming from eyewitness testimony. If you say it's eyewitness testimony and then you're proven wrong and then you just jump back to, well, it's the Holy Spirit, I'm sorry, but your argument kind of loses its luster for me personally. And I don't think that that's even a historically viable orthodox belief about how um, inspiration works. I think inspiration... The, the theology of inspiration might be for um, some sort of prophecy. Maybe you see something in the future that you don't understand, but I don't think it's like 
they can see through walls into the the interview between Pilate and um, and if that was the case, why not let every disciple be able to see through walls and give us an account of the conversation between Pilate? But instead, we have three that say he said nothing, and only one that has this long extended conversation. So I mean, it's like either God is revealing it supernaturally through the Holy Spirit, and that's the witness. But then he could do that with all the Gospels. So why only with John? Um, especially if you're going to just negate all the details in John that uh, don't conform with the other Gospels. Yeah, it's another example, in my view, of cherry-picking your argument. So um, when one argument fails, it's all right, don't worry about it, just move on to the next one. And that's what yeah. you see here. Because, I mean, what you hear constantly is the reason that they talk about differing eyewitnesses as many times is to get rid of these problems. So when they see a difficulty, they say, oh, well, this is just the perspective of this person witnessing it. And that's from the perspective of the other author that also witnessed the same thing. And then when you show that that can't possibly be the case, then they say, well, it's just all coming from the Holy Spirit. So it's not very consistent at all. And, it, and when we're trying to have a discussion with them to really understand what their position is, you have to uh, deal with these kind of arguments. Yeah, and the only thing I'll say, um, and I think that one of the first conversations we ever had about um, historical criticism and contradictions in the Bible, um, you talked about just how much of our conceptions are based on tradition. So there are these traditional beliefs that go back to, some of them even go back very early, but are not necessarily historical and actually we have better tools now to examine um how historical they are um than even some of the people that had those beliefs did at the time but these beliefs about who wrote the gospels these beliefs about inerrancy of scripture um there's so many of these beliefs that once you get down to really digging into the bible you'll find out that people their ultimate foundation is not the Bible. It's some sort of extra-biblical belief that they've constructed to protect the Bible from any type of real scrutiny. So it's like, no, it's perfect. If you think there's a mistake, it's really a mistake in your thinking. Or these are just eyewitnesses' accounts, um, and we know that because tradition has always told us that. Oh, well, that's wrong. Well, then the Holy Spirit is inspiring the Word. Um, so it's all these extra theological ideas that have been constructed, um, some of them that are, don't even have a long shelf life as far as history goes. Maybe they're 100 years old, like inerrancy, um, if even that. And, and a lot of them are just based on traditional beliefs that don't necessarily hold up to any type of scrutiny, especially historical scrutiny. And it does make it frustrating trying to break through this is, uh, I think we both agree this is definitely a contradiction, but I also think that um, just from a, the perspective of like a curious reader, the um, accounts of the trial of Jesus are, especially in John, are, are super fascinating. Um, and the differences between the accounts and the Gospels are super fascinating. So if you want something to dive into, it's another one of the really good places to see the differences um, and the different themes that the gospel writers are talking about in their gospels. False Witness. This is False Witness, the segment where we take a look at four verses, three of which are real and one is false, planted mischievously by our producer Diana. It's our job to analyze each verse and find the imposter. Once we have each made our choice, I will open the sealed envelope and reveal which verse is indeed the false witness. So, Ben, can you get us started? Sure. Verse number one. How skilled you are at pursuing love. Even the worst of women can learn from your ways. Number two. He brings the clouds to punish people or to water his earth and show his love. Number three, all prostitutes receive gifts, but you give gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from everywhere for your illicit favors. And number four, they that fear the Lord will not disobey his word, and they that love him will keep his way. 
Okay, some really interesting verses here. Um, <laughs> some of them, some of them, right away stood out to me as being not very biblical sounding. But um, I guess let's just go through them. So, number one, how skilled you are at pursuing love. Even the worst of women can learn from your ways. <laughs> wow. Uh, I think that, like, you know, the, it doesn't, it seems to stand in the face of uh, the normal uh, perception of, like, a, a woman in the Bible that, um, we would consider moral or, um, so it's hard to know without the context, um, what exactly they're talking about. Um, but it seems so unreal that it almost makes me think that it is real. Yeah. I was going to say the same thing. I, I find it hard to believe that Diana would put this into fool us into, yeah. because, um, it's almost so strange sounding that, um, it has to be real. It's like when you have a textual variant and you have to pick the one that is the most problematic because why would someone change something to a more problematic um, thing? And I sort of feel like it's like it's the same logic here. Like if she was going to try to trick us, she wouldn't put in something that is seemingly so odd. Right. Um, unless she's really playing like three-dimensional chess. Right. Um, in which case I give her props. But So I initially thought, well, this seems like uh, something that is not consistent with biblical morality. But then I thought um, that maybe they're all supposed to kind of trick us. Um, so that was my thinking, too. Okay, so let's move on to number two. He brings the clouds to punish people or to water his earth and show his love. Um, I think that's my, my right off the top of my head. I think that's probably real, um, because there are instances where, for instance, the flood where God is punishing people with the weather and, um, causing calamity and, and, uh, strife and, um, but also the clouds bring rain to water the earth, um, it certainly sounds like something that would have been said in the Bible. I don't I don't remember it specifically. Yeah, I sort of feel the same way. It could have been it's not something that I necessarily remember. Um but it's not inconceivable. Um, right. and it seems to fit it seems to fit the flood narrative or some sort of an allusion to the flood. Okay, so then let's move on number 3. All prostitutes receive gifts. But you give gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from everywhere for your illicit favors. I sort of feel like the same way that yeah. I did about number one. It, it could be real. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it just seems like something that would not fool us if it's uh, fake. Yeah, um, I, I feel these. And I could see this being like, so there's some weird texts in the Bible, too, that surprise you with... Um, they're kind of like questionable examples of uh, moral figures. So I'm going to actually, yeah, I think that this could be real, actually. It's actually talking about a prostitute. Um, instead, of, instead of receiving payment for their services, um, it's saying that, like, she's actually paying them to give them her services. So I think it's kind of an insult. Um that's what that's what it sounds like to me. I, I, I'm probably thinking this probably is biblical. Uh, again, using the same logic that we use for verse number one, like you said. Uh, but let me move on. Verse four: They that fear the Lord will not disobey His word, and they that love Him will keep His way. I mean, that to me just seems so obviously biblical. Yeah. So. To me, it seems so obviously biblical that, like, I, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm just um, have like convinced myself to be counterintuitive, and now I'm, I'm not able to <laughs> get a rational like view of these choices. But I'm almost thinking this is fake because it seems the most real. I know, like, that logic doesn't really make sense. But with the choices that I have here. I think either two or three are are the uh, fakes. 
Yeah. I'm going to say four is the fake. Wow. So you're choosing the most... Obviously biblical right. one. And I'm thinking that it's probably from some sort of uh, like apocryphal or uh, other source that has like a biblical precept um, along with all the other heresy. Along the same lines, Ben, I'm going to go with number two. Yeah, see, this is good. Um, now we'll see. So number one and number three are kind of the the ones that are kind of out there. We'll see. I think maybe she's trying to get us to take the bait on number two, on number one and number three. But number two and number four seem so uh, biblical, straightforward. Um, I'm going with number two just because um, I don't remember it. And number four, I feel like there's a lot of verses in the Bible that are extremely similar to that that I remember. Um, yeah. So I'm, that's why I'm going with number two. But I will now proceed to open the wax-sealed envelope that our producer Diana has given me. And we will start from the top with number one. How skilled you are at pursuing love. Even the worst of women can learn from your ways. This comes from... Jeremiah 2.33. So it is biblical. Um, And let's move on to number two, which is the one that I believe is the fake. And it says, He brings the clouds to punish people or to water his earth and show his love. This comes from Job 37.13. You know, now that I read that it comes from Job, I kind of like it makes total sense. Not saying I remember it specifically, but I kind of feel like I do a little yeah, bit. Yeah, probably from one of Job's friends talking about uh, God's judgment on uh, Job, and uh, or like God's overall sovereignty and order yeah. and creation, trying oh. to justify Job's suffering. If I had to guess, but it makes sense. I I kept thinking it sounds really primitive, um, but Job has a lot of like really primitive kind of poetic. Um, portions where the friends are talking to him or where Job is having some sort of a kind of like existential uh, dialogue with himself or with his friends um, or the visitors, whatever you want to call them. Um, So this sort of makes sense. And so number three is all prostitutes receive gifts, but you give gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from everywhere for your illicit favors. And both Ben and I think this one is real. And this one is real. This is Ezekiel <laughs> 16.33. Nice. Um, which means, Ben, you got it. Uh, and right. it's amazing because to me, this was the most biblical uh, sounding one of all of them. And it reads, They that fear the Lord will not disobey his word. And they that love him will keep his ways. This comes from an apocryphal book called Ecclesiasticus, and it's Ecclesiasticus 2.15. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the um, apocryphal books or the Gnostic Gospels or the other books. It's important to remember that a lot of these books were like affirmed by early Christians, too. So... Um, it's not like all of the doctrine that they were teaching is so outlandish or different or separate um, that it couldn't be consistently integrated with some of the other uh, textual materials that we have in our canon. Yeah, um, that's exactly right. If you read a lot of the um, non-canonical early Christian books, a lot of them read completely like uh, something directly out of the Bible. You know, I mean, it's all a matter of perspective, I think. Yeah, I think about in... Um, the pastoral epistles, how women will be saved during childbirth. To me, if I had never read that before and then someone showed it to me as an apocryphal book or like the Gospel of Thomas or something, I would be like, oh, that makes sense because it's such a strange verse. But no, like we're just we're just used to hearing it, but it's it's in our canonical Bibles. And I think also there are like the inklings of um, some of these heretical teachings uh, are in some of our gospels and scriptures already too. Um, so you see sort of like the, the proto version of some of the early heresies or some of the influence of the thought that led to those heresies. So it's different. The, the point is really um, not to get sidetracked, but just that it's hard to judge sometimes the 
apocryphal text. They're not going to be like teaching some crazy heretical view every time. Right. Well, thank you again, Diana. Um, great job on this. You fooled me and um, Ben was able to get it right this time. So I guess you're going to have to try a little bit harder. Yeah. Great job, Diana. Um, thank you. Those were tough choices. Only by totally reversing logic was I able to get the right answer. So, um, and uh, it actually lent itself to a kind of uh, interesting discussion too. Yes. Thank you again. The Skeptics Bible Project is a John and Ben production, with intro music by John Lobker. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash skepticsbibleproject and follow us on all social media platforms at skepticsproject got questions or comments email us at skepticsbibleproject at gmail.com